Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Lord, thank you for joy. Thank you for this family. Thank you that you do speak. Thank you for, that's your promise, and that's what you're after. You're not after us to do anything for you. You're not after us to, uh, to be a certain type of person. You want us to listen. You want us to connect with you so that you can speak to us. And so in this next bit of time, will you silence voices, even our own, that might say things about you, say things about us, and open our hearts to what you want to speak. We praise you, Lord. I thank you for this family. It's in your name. Amen. All right. So if you are with us for the first time, we've been in this series for the last couple of weeks that we are calling The Way of Jesus. Uh, you just saw the mention made of uh, those emails that we're sending out every Sunday uh, with information. We're basically, as a church, um, we want to practice, we want to take upon ourselves new spiritual practices as a way of connecting with God. And, and sort of the, the impetus, the, the, the ground source of this series comes from uh, the physicist, Erwin uh, Schrodinger, who said, how does a living thing remain alive? And it's quite simple. He goes, you eat things, you drink, you breathe. In short, what you consume, what a living organism consumes, it metabolizes. It changes into energy. Energy that either leads to life and abundance of life or energy that leads to death. And, and we can even see that. Like if, if we eat fast food every single day and that's all we eat, uh, we are gonna consume that and it will metabolize into uh, our bodies breaking down. That's what we're getting at with the way of Jesus. And, and the reason why is because when we look at the story of Jesus of Nazareth, when we look at his story, we see a power and an abundance potency in his life that we don't see elsewhere. You don't see in other stories. It is utterly unsurpassed in its beauty, uh, in the, the way it's structured, even the fact that it ends in death and resurrection, the, the power that emanates from him. He's constantly touching people and healing them. People get in his presence and they're stunned, they're astonished. There is a life, an abundance of life that flows from him. And essentially, you know, using Schrodinger, we want to say, well, what is he consuming? Because I'll have what he's having. Whatever he's eating, it is somehow leading to a rest and a life that I don't see elsewhere. And he says that about himself. He goes, I know it might be tough to believe my words, my claims about myself. If you don't believe my words, at least believe my works. Look at the things I'm doing. Look what's happening through my hands. Believe that. And so then we look at his story and we ask, well, where does this abundant life come from? He gives us the answer. He doesn't hide it. And this is what he says in John 5. He goes, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. Nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. Jesus is fundamentally saying that he has no power intrinsic to himself. His power, what we see emanate from him, is 
100% due to his relationship with God, with the creator that is behind all that is. It is 100% due to an overflow of his relationship, of his connecting, of his listening to God. And this is important because he says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Basically, all you who are eating things, consuming things, and it's metabolizing not to life, but to anxiety and to, and to death and to destruction. Come to me and I will give you what I have. I will give you rest and life and power. But how do you get it? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It entails a way of life. It entails a set of practices, which is important because it means we cannot separate the way of Jesus from Jesus. If you just take on the practices, and again, we're all over the spiritual spectrum. Some here uh, believe Jesus is who he says he is. Some aren't so sure. Some are starting to like feel it deep down that there's some truth in this story. Wherever you are, it is good to, to, to come to him with a little step at a time. But if you just take on the practices, you'll get closer, but you won't get to the, the final result because it comes through the relationship. You cannot separate the way of Jesus from Jesus. And so what we're looking at are these practices, this way of life. And last week we talked about the first one. And if you were with us, uh, you remember I said that it's, it's kind of less of a practice and more of a commitment. And that is the commitment to solitude. Solitude is a commitment to a conversation with God. Solitude is separating yourself from all the identity markers in your world. It's, it's ceasing to be in that moment uh, a spouse. It's ceasing in that moment to be a worker, a producer, uh, a consumer. It's ceasing in that moment to be, oh, lights out. <laughs> um, thank you, Nathan. Y'all still see me? Is that all right? All right, cool. Um, it's ceasing to be all those things, and it's instead connecting yourself to the source. It's connecting yourself to God. And what we said is, uh, etymologically, the word conversation at its root, when it developed, it was not shared words, but a shared life. So it's sharing space and time with God. And fundamentally, I gestured last week that when you get into that space and time with God, what you're gonna find, what you're gonna hear, what's gonna sort of comprise that is listening to God listen. You're both gonna be staring at each other and you're both, there it is, let there be light. <laughs> you're both gonna be staring at one another and you're gonna be at rest in each other's presence. And I can't explain it. If you haven't experienced it, I can't explain it. Other than to say the word that most sums up what, you, what will fill you as you listen to God, listen is joy. Joy is the essence of God. Joy is the essence of of the world, joy is the essence of Jesus's life and power and vitality. And out of that joy, out of that shared life with God, all these words and other practices come. And that's what we're gonna dive into today. Uh, namely, prayer. We're gonna talk about prayer. And then we're gonna spend the next two weeks, this week and next Sunday, talking about prayer. Um, and how Jesus practiced it. Because I think it's important for us to both redefine prayer, sort of reframe the context before, which is what we're gonna do today, before we go into, okay, what are the words that actually fill a prayer? 
And when we're talking about prayer, uh, the best place I think to go to is when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. They asked him, Lord, how do we pray? And this is what he said. Um, it's in all four of the gospels, or at least Matthew and Luke. I'm not sure if it's in Mark and John, probably is. But we're gonna read from Matthew's gospel during the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter six, we have the text up here. Uh, and this is what Jesus says. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to, to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, so as to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Prayer. Today, what I wanna do is focus on that first part, that preface, not the words themselves, but the preface where Jesus sort of redefines. He says, don't pray like that, don't pray like that. And I think it's important. Um, prayer is an impulse. It's an impulse to connect with a supernatural order or a supernatural being. And as I'm sure we all know, it is not unique to Jesus. <laughs> it has been practiced, it's pretty much as old as humanity. Uh, one scholar wrote that the most intimate essence of religion is revealed by the most simple religious act, prayer. The desire, the impulse to connect with God. Now this is important because there, there are different views of sort of the evolution of religion, where religion as, a, as systems and rules came from. One of them is put forth um, by Yuval Harari, who wrote the, the popular work Sapiens, which I'm still working my, my way through. And it's really good. I really like it. And he says that the religious impulse, basically this view, and it's not new, a lot of people say it, that the religious impulse, the impulse to connect with a supernatural being, developed uh, most readily with the agricultural revolution. For when Homo sapiens discovered that they could manipulate the ground, they could control the earth, then they realized that this became a tool of control for groups. That is, if they could control the ground, perhaps there was a deity or deities that could control them. So it became this sort of this contract, uh, that of the controlling, manipulating deity who you must uh, offer sacrifices to and placate in exchange for a good harvest, a good crop. And he writes, ancient mythology is in fact a legal contract in which humans promise everlasting devotion to the gods in exchange for mastery over plants and animals. The first chapters of the book of Genesis are a prime example. Now I was okay with that first part. <laughs> I was okay with the part where he talks about uh, religion, right? Because that's basically what he's getting at, is a legal contract where humans, they promise devotion to the gods, God or gods, in exchange for uh, the gods giving them control 
being able to manipulate or uh, subject their earth, dominate their earth. That is what we see. And we do see in the agricultural revolution, just uh, an abundance, a proliferation of religions. But when he dragged Genesis into it, (laughs) that got me. Because frankly, when you read the first chapters of Genesis, which tells the story, the Judeo-Christian story of God who created the heavens and the earth. And to finish that and assume that there's nothing more than a legal contract of devotion for mastery. That view, friends, is cynical and unimaginative and small. Because the first chapters of Genesis have absolutely nothing to do with the legal contract between sapiens and God who trade everlasting devotion for mastery over the world. The first chapters of Genesis have everything to do with an artist creating a masterpiece. An artist from sheer joy and abundance says, let there be, and there was. Interestingly, the Judeo-Christian creation story is the only one we know of that where the creator creates from joy, not from like some primal conflict or conquest or, or warring orders. It's sheer overflow. God, who is pure life, the source of being, the groundswell of being, the maker, he just can't contain it. And he, it just flows out of him. It's a creating of a masterpiece. And this is important because though Harari is correct, in the agricultural revolution, we do see religions in this sort of contractual exchange develop we actually have fossil records of Homo sapiens before this. And we find that the first Homo sapiens had a unique characteristic. They drew pictures. They drew pictures mainly of the animals that they encountered. Now, some say it's it's sort of from the natural symbiosis between Homo sapiens and their surrounding environments to draw the animals, to to see them and to replicate what they see, to want to recreate it. But friends, so far as I can tell, it's not natural for animals in their, you know, spontaneously in their natural environment to draw pictures. I love how Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton puts it in Everlasting Man. He says, when all is said, the main fact, and he calls them the reindeer men um, because he's referring to the fossil records of reindeer, pictures of reindeer. When all is said, the main fact that the record of the reindeer men attest, along with all other records, is that the reindeer men could draw and the reindeer could not. If he was an ordinary product of biological growth, like any other beast or bird, then it is all the more extraordinary that he was not in the least like any other beast or bird. He seems rather more supernatural, talking about homo sapiens, He seems rather more supernatural as a natural product than as a supernatural one. This creature was truly different from all other creatures because he was a creator as well as a creature. Now, I'm not taking a shot at evolution. I'm really not. I'm taking a shot at naturalism. The view that that we come into existence outside of a supernatural, uh, supernatural mind and being that has willed this all, that has intended this all. For creating art, friends, is not natural. It is unique to the human creature. Creating art from the sheer spontaneous overflow of our hearts to draw something aesthetically pleasing for delight, 
That's not natural. Which is why the view is small and unimaginative for people to assume that prayer at its core is a natural exchange of devotion for control. Perhaps that view that prayer is a natural exchange for devotion of devotion for control is what Jesus is attacking and saying, don't pray like that. Dear God, don't pray like that. That's ridiculous. Perhaps Jesus is trying to peel back our dead cynicism to the first prayer ever prayed when a human saw a reindeer and exclaimed, my God, what is that? That's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I have to draw it. Perhaps that's what we're getting at with prayer. Perhaps prayer at its core is the impulse to thank someone for something because we're alive. And the sheer astonishment of finding ourselves conscious and aware and alive is transformative. I love the way Rabbi Heschel puts it. Prayer is our humble answer to the inconceivable surprise of living. Prayer, prayer at its core is our humble response to the unfathomable, inconceivable surprise of finding ourselves alive in this world, surrounded by so much beauty. Religion, religion as an exchange of devotion for control, that, that's not, prayer. And Jesus is saying, don't do that, which is why we talk about often that in this space, you're not being invited into a religion. You're not being invited into rites and rituals for their own sake. You're being invited first and foremost into a relationship with God, relationship with one another. And out of that relationship, community develops. But the only thing that gives life to this is relationship. And what captures that instinctual awe and wonder more than art? I don't know where I read this. Um, I don't know if someone actually said it or if we're sort of like trying to characterize the modern view. But I read somewhere sort of characterizing this modern view we're in of, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And I find that so sad because why isn't our missing him somehow evidence that there is a God to miss? Why don't we trust ourselves? See, the cynic, friends, the cynic is never fooled because the cynic is never surprised. And at the core of prayer, at the core of true intimacy with the creator is surprise. Is the shock, the humble response to the inconceivable shock of finding yourself alive is gratitude, that there is such a thing as being alive. I was reading a book on prayer and uh, he, uh, the author uses an example, um, a class where the professor was teaching on Augustine. Um, anyone ever read Augustine's Confessions? Yeah, and he's teaching it to high schoolers and the high schoolers just are not, they're not getting it. They're, they're making fun of it. They're not engaging. And if you're a teacher in the room, you probably know this or you're just getting so frustrated and then in this moment, one of the high schoolers basically goes, Augustine's boring. And he just shoots back at him. He goes, no, Augustine's not boring. You're boring. <laughs> Friends, I want to say humbly, for those of us who say prayer is hard, prayer is boring. I want to say, no, 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 prayer's not boring. You're boring. <laughs> prayer's not difficult. You're cynical. 
I'm cynical. Because for me, prayer has become the religious exchange of devotion for control. Instead of drawing pictures of reindeer with my father. Augustine's not boring, I'm boring. We say prayer is hard. We say it doesn't feel natural, it feels odd. But I wanna humbly suggest it's because we're cynics and we're dull. And as Chesterton writes, we've sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. God is more of a child than you and I are. God has more of that spirit of life. Do you remember being a kid and waking up and just being so shocked that you have a full day of daylight to do whatever you want on a Saturday? And my family, uh, we were sort of a new subdivision. And so um, for a while, when we moved into our house, there was just woods behind us before they developed it. I can't tell you how much fun it was to wake up in the morning and to just run out the back door and get lost in those woods. Do you remember that? Do you remember where there was just, there was no limits. It was so incredible that you could do nothing but play. Just play. Prayer is difficult for us because I'm no longer surprised at being alive. I got it now. I'm used to it. Prayer feels odd to me because it is a cold, transactional exchange with an impersonal deity. I exchange my devotion and he gives me control over my life. And it's no longer anymore drawing a picture. But if Jesus is the abundantly alive one, if there's something and he says, there's something in him that just flows out and he says about himself, look, I have no power in and of myself. It is all the relationship with the father. Well then, what does he have to teach us about prayer? What does it mean to connect with God? And I wanna look at the assumptions he makes. So when he says, don't do it like this, do it like this, before we get into what actually to say next week. Jesus gives two wrong ways of thinking about prayer to his disciples. And they both stem from the same root. And the root is this, that prayer, that relationship is zero sum, right? That's ultimately what religion is. That's what that contractual exchange is. It's zero sum. I give you my devotion, God, gods, deities, whatever, and you give me control. It's a transaction. It's zero sum. And the two, the two wrong ways to pray, he says, or to think about prayer, is as performance and magic. He says prayer is neither of those. First, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. They stand on wide corners in churches and they pray out loud for everyone to hear them. The Greek word hypocrite, hypocrites, means actor. It means an actor. So he's saying prayer, it's not a performance for God or others because in a performance, it's zero sum, isn't it? You do your part, but you're really, you're not that character. You're just becoming that character. You're doing your part. And then depending on how good you were, you receive the applause of God and you receive the applause of others. If you're not convincing enough, if you didn't do your part, you don't get the applause. You don't receive the reward. It's zero sum. I do these things. I'm this good of a person. I avoid these things. I'm not a bad person. Therefore, in exchange for that, for my performance, God gives me what he owes me. He gives me control over my life or whatever. He makes bad things not happen to me. 
That's not prayer, says Jesus. That's not gratitude. That's not praise. And then he goes on to say, and don't babble like the pagans. It's a fun word, batalageo. It basically means to say the same words over and over and over again. It's basically getting the idea that, that prayer for, for, for groups is magic. It's an incantation. If you say the right words or, or find the right string of syllables, it's like a secret uh, password that unlocks God. It's like, oh, okay, you said it. Now I'll give you what you want. Y'all remember the movie, The Mummy, way back in the day, Brendan Fraser? One of the scenes that always stuck with me, there was like this, this squirrely fellow who was like a betrayer and stuff. And when he encountered the mummy for the first time, he had around his neck um, the, the icons of all the various major religions. And he'd pull them up and he'd say a prayer in their, their original language. So he'd, like, he'd pray to Allah and he'd pray to, to, to Yahweh, he'd pray to Jesus. And he's just like terrified. He's like, which one is the right one? Please, one of them be the right one. That's batalageo. That's hoping that, that God is, is, is a genie. It's a magic trick. It's zero sum. I do my part. I say the right words. God unlocks favor and blessings or whatever. But that's not what prayer is. Notice in the first example, God is Santa Claus. If I'm a good boy or good girl, if I perform right, he gives me what I want. And the second example, God is a magic trick. If I know the secret password, I unlock the door. And this is important, friends, because what's at stake, Jesus would say, is how you think about your creator. What's at stake is the nature of God. He's asking us, how impersonal do you think God is? How cold do you think he is? You don't have to perform for him. You don't have to master the spell. He's not a distant, impersonal being who trades mastery for devotion. That's not him. Who is he? And he says throughout, he's a good father. He's a good mother. He's a good parent. Is a parent's love zero sum? And some of you are parents in the room, but all of us, I think, can understand this concept. Is a parent's love zero sum? Can it be exhausted? Can, can a parent's favor for their child be, a good parent, I should say, can a good parent's favor for their child ever be forfeited? Do you have to say the right words to get into your father's presence? Do you have to perform before your mother says, okay, come on in? Do you, is, it a, is it a magic trick or a state of mind or know the secret password to unlock a parent's love? No. <laughs> Your father knows what you need before you ask him because good parents do. Your, 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 your father is waiting, is there always. And the relationship has nothing to do with your performance or your earning anything. Every parent knows love, favor for their child comes not based on the child's conditions. It's because I'm the parent and I created this child. There is something prior to what the child could ever do or not do. See, the issue is, the issue is if we're being honest, if I'm being honest, 
I prefer a zero-sum God to Jesus's view of God as a good father. I prefer religion because at least I get to control my life. At least I know what the rules of the game are. At least when the prayers don't come, I know it's because me. <laughs> I somehow failed to do something. I prefer zero sum because then I have a measure of self-respect and I have control and I have power. I am an adult. I become like the God. See, if, 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 the, if the view espoused by Harari is correct, that religion is simply a cold and personal exchange of devotion for power, then it's God as a prostitute. There's no love, just a cold transaction. And then if that's the case, and I would agree with this, there may be nothing more demonic than religion. There may be nothing more harmful that clouds our eyes from who the creator really is than religion. That's not at all what Jesus is saying your God is like. See, prayer is odd in America, especially, because you and I, we can take care of ourselves. And the essence of Jesus's form of prayer is utter dependence on the sheer gratuitous act of our father bringing us into existence. We don't have control of our life. We didn't will ourselves into existence. It was a gift. And the prayer that Jesus is getting at, true connection with God is birthed out of that gratitude and that shock. The cynic is never fooled because the cynic is in control. The cynic performs for love. The cynic does magic for acceptance. And that certainly makes us all cynics. But to pray as a child to a good father is to start drawing pictures of reindeers again. To pray as a child to a good mother is to say, mom, look what I made. It's to say, dad, I'm so afraid. It's to say, mom, I'm so sad. Say, dad, would you draw pictures with me? But well, that's humiliating. Jesus would say that's the only way to abundant life. If we want to learn to pray as Jesus did, we have to give up control. And we all prefer the God of religion more than the good father who we're utterly dependent on. I love this line from George MacDonald talking about uh, when heaven comes to earth, when God returns and all, uh, and God is all in all. And he writes, what boy or girl would prefer a sermon to their glorious kite? That divinest of toys, he was an old English guy, <laughs> with God himself for their playmate and the blue wind that tossed it hither and thither. I told you it was old English. Hither and thither in the golden void. They might be ready to part with kite and wind and sun and go down to the grave for their family, but surely not that they might be admitted to an everlasting prayer meeting. How horrible a thought. For my own part, I rejoice to think that there will be neither church nor chapel in the high countries. Yea, that there will be nothing there called religion and no law but the perfect law of liberty. For how should there be law or religion where every throb of the heart says God, where every song throat is eager with thanksgiving, 
where such a tumult of glad waters is forever bursting from beneath the throne of the Father, the tears of the gladness of the universe. Religion? Where will be the room for it when the essence of every thought must be the creator? See, before we can talk about what to say in prayer, we need to liberate prayer. We need to liberate God from the stranglehold of religion that we've all fallen prey to, whether you would call yourself a follower of Jesus or not. We have this idea and many times our idea of God is that cold impersonal deity that we exchange devotion for control. Not at all. God is a good parent who brought you into existence because he wanted you there. He wanted you alive. He is overjoyed you're alive. But guess what? You have no control over your existence. You have no claim on it. It's sheer overflow. Prayer might be more. The true essence of prayer, Jesus would say, might be more of flying a kite with God, drawing reindeers with a good father. For me, um, the liberation of prayer is an ongoing process because I've grown old and I'm cynical too. I want control. And actually quite recently, something shifted in me. Um, at the time I was, I was still thinking that prayer, you know, I needed to be on my knees and, and folded hands, closed eyes, which I think is important, the form matters. But I'm a very energetic, passionate guy, if you haven't noticed. And I found myself stifled in that space. And so one morning I got up and um, I went to do my devotions in the living room and I turned on worship music and without, like, I just felt like worshiping. So I started pacing my, my living room and just singing out loud. And then as I sang, uh, prayers would come out. So I would go in and out of singing and also praying to God, talking to him what's on my heart, who's, who I'm thinking about, um, who I'm really mourning over, who I'm hoping good things for, what I'm afraid of. And I would go in and out of worshiping and speaking and then listening. I did that for 45 minutes without realizing 45 minutes had passed. That was an example of liberating the idea that prayer is not one form. There's no right or wrong way to pray. It's understanding how you've been made. It's understanding how you connect with God, your good father, and then doing that. Notice, and then I would say even before that, I was prayer walking a little bit. So I'd go from prayer walking to this pacing, and now I'm on my knees a bit more. The form keeps changing, but what doesn't change is sort of the way that the child goes from baseball to dance, to drawing, to trips, but never to earn a parent's love, never to unlock his presence. It's my heart getting on its knees. It's the response of gratitude and all at the inconceivable surprise of being alive. So before Jesus can tell us what to say, he restores to us the true essence of prayer, drawing pictures with mom and dad. A creator so overflowing with joy, he had to bring a world into existence. A child so astonished that they're alive, that there's such a thing called consciousness, that there's beauty, that there are creatures called reindeer. So astonished, they just have to get on the floor with mom and dad and draw pictures. What else is there to do? It's too incredible not to. The first prayer was a work of art. It was a drawing. 
Because the best art is the gratuitous overflow of our truest selves. That's the best art. I want to invite the band back up. One of my favorite lines from a book, paragraph, that talks about sort of this idea. It's where I get the line, um, for we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. And it talks about this sense of what is the true nature of God? And then I've sort of applied it to prayer. But I love it because it, it sort of releases the cynicism in our own hearts. It brings us back to a, a dependent place, which Jesus would say that the, the only thing, the, that this abundant life, this power you see in my life, it is not from my self-reliance. It is not from my independence. It comes from dependence on God. And so talking about this relationship, talking about this flow, this is what we read. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life, like in an airplane where the child's just kicking your seat over and over and over. Because children have abounding vitality. Because they are in spirit, fierce and free, Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he or she is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately and has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that the source of all life has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. The repetition of nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. See friends, if our father is younger than we, just drawing pictures, just creating life, waiting for us to leave behind the cold demonic halls of religion, of thinking you have to earn his presence, earn his love. Then before we even know what to pray, we have to grow young again with our God. We have to return to that state of sheer gratitude, of pacing your living room, if that's for you, maybe not. Pacing your living room saying, I cannot believe I'm alive. I cannot believe I'm alive. I cannot believe there's such a creature called whales. I cannot, I don't know why that came to my mind, but I can't believe it. I can't believe there's such beauty 
in this world. I can't believe there's such a thing called friendship. Friendship is such a good gift. It's the best of gifts. It's the heart of God. That there is such a thing as true friends, that there's art. I can't believe it's so beautiful and I know it's so broken and that makes me so sad. But I know that God is not running away from the broken, but is running into it. I don't wanna be old and cynical. I want that eternal appetite of infancy that says, do it again, do it again, let's do it again. I wanna grow young with a good father, a good mother who says, you don't have to do anything to get in my presence, just come on. You kidding me? Are you kidding me? How cold and shallow do you think I am? Just come, just come. There's no right or wrong way to pray. As Brennan Manning says, don't force it. Just relax in the presence of the God you half believe in and ask for a touch of folly. So this week, as you go to your space of solitude, as you get alone with your Lectio journals, what we're gonna do right now and what I wanna ask you to do is draw pictures. Maybe not literally, but maybe literally for you. What's your picture? What's that thing that sends you back to childhood that makes you come alive? For Anna, my wife, she loves nature. She has to be in it. She connects with God in nature. So she goes and takes walks. At least that's what she's working on. What is your thing? Is it a kite? Do you need to go fly a kite? Are we gonna see Hope Brooklyn people flying kites in Prospect Park this week? Where do you become a child again with God? Go do it and invite God to come with you, to join you in it. And as you do it, just tell him, where are you afraid? Where are you sad? Where are you angry? Why are you so happy? Will you close your eyes and pray with me? Father, we're listening because we know every word from the source of life brings life. We know that when we get in your presence, when we stare into your face, we listen to God listen. And joy overflows us. We know that your presence melts our hearts Father I don't know the people in this room I don't know their thoughts of you but my prayer right now in this next little bit of time is that they would sense your love for them like a good parent, you can never lose God's love, ever. I think you need to hear that today, whoever you are. You can never lose God's love. Your father adores you. 
your mother is with you. Come and draw pictures. Holy Spirit, even right now, would you give each person in this room one action, one step. Invite them to become a child with you again. And as you feel it, as you sense it, fill your heart. Don't censor yourself, friends. Don't become a cynic and say, no, that couldn't be God. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. What is that thing, that action, that form, whether it's maybe it's on your knees in meditation or maybe it's pacing the room or maybe it is flying a kite or drawing pictures. What is it that makes you come alive? Right now, Holy Spirit, speak to this room, speak to your people. Father, I pray, liberate us from the demonic hold of religion that has on our hearts, that thinks that you're a God to be appeased or you're a distant deity, that thinks that, that your favor is zero sum, your presence is zero sum. Liberate us from that, for that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to say, your father is the air you breathe, closer than the air you breathe. He's with you. He came to set you free. And you will become free when you relinquish control over your life. When you allow yourself to enter into a relationship with God through Jesus, his son. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And the freedom and the power we see in his life can be ours. But it's not gonna come through what you do or don't do. It's not gonna come through rites and sacrifices. It's gonna come through entering into a healthy relationship. Thank you that you're patient, God, and thank you that you invite us into these ways of life. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.